So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know, know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him and he rose from, after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of the sins through his name. All right, well let's get into God's word. If you're new here, we love the Bible so much. We preach verse by ver verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, precept upon precept. And we find ourselves in the book of Acts this morning. We are in chapter 10. We're looking at verses 34 through 43. And there's an interesting story I want to share about Mahatma Gandhi. A lot of you guys know who that is. He helped liberate India. He fought against the caste system. He's famous in India. But there's a true story. He was a, a lawyer, too, in South Africa, studied law in South Africa. And um, he was really drawn, in particular, to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was enamored with the Sermon on the Mount, and he was thinking even thinking about converting to Christianity because he believed that Jesus Christ and Christianity, at least from what he understood by reading the New Testament, was the answer to the caste system that plagued India. Now, I want to just stop and let you know, Gandhi was on to something, okay? Because when the gospel takes root in the heart of man, societies, communities change. Gandhi was right. He, he was on to something here when he said that he believed that this, is, this could change India, this could change the caste system. So one Sunday he went into church, that is, he, or at least he tried to enter into a church, and he was stopped by an usher at the door. And the usher told him, hey, look, I, I'm, I suggest that you, being a brown person, go worship with your own people. He wasn't allowed into the white church. And Gandhi walked away from that, he wrote this, he says, well, there seems to be a caste system even within Christianity, so I just think I'll remain a Hindu. True story. Later wrote this. It was at that moment when that man said that to him that he rejected Jesus Christ, rejected Christianity. He decided at that moment, I'm just going to stay with the system I was raised with and try to reform it. How sad. How sad. If you haven't noticed in the book of Acts, there's this reoccurring, reoccurring theme we see over and over and over, and it's this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of what? Who? Is it by the power of you or the power of me? No, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it cannot be done unless we embrace the power of the Holy Spirit, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, people follow God to where and to who he wants them to share the gospel with. 
We see this over and over in the book of Acts. And when, when they get there, they listen to God and they do what he's calling them to do. In Acts 10, which we're in today, it, it has us follow Peter do things and proclaim things for Jesus that he never thought he would do. And of these, the one that stands out probably the most is that Peter goes and he speaks to a Gentile. He speaks to the Gentiles. Now, just to recap, if you weren't with us last week, the Gentiles were a people with which the Jews would not associate. In fact, I have read scholars say that the, the hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles was more intense than anything we experience in the world today. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it does give you an idea of how intense this was. All right? In fact, the Jews considered it was breaking their law to associate with a Gentile. But here we've got Peter doing that, and more, actually. Now, remember, he wasn't okay with it at first. He wasn't okay with it at first, but here, we've, here we have him doing this. The Holy Spirit had to, to work on his heart. And, and here's what I want you to understand. Peter loved God, and, and because of his love for God, he did change the way that he thought. I mean, that's what following Jesus does, right? When we follow Jesus, we change. Our attitudes change. The way we think changes. When we embrace Jesus, the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and our minds. That's a sign of authentic conversion. That is a sign of authentic salvation. When somebody gives their life to Jesus, things start to change. The way that you used to think is not the way you think anymore. And here we've got this, Peter. Now, was he saved already? Yeah, he was. We talked about it. He's, he's growing in his relationship with Jesus. So he's changed the way he thinks. He, he received a vision from God that eventually uh, led him to declare the gospel and, and baptizing a group of Gentiles. The Spirit moves in Peter's life and also in the life of a man named Cornelius, who we talked about last week, and God made all of this happen. Neither one of them knew about each other until God led them to each other through, through divine visions. All of that to say that without God, this wouldn't have happened. This would have been impossible without God. God moved in their lives, brought them together at the right time, a divine connection, and God moved. Now, according to Peter's ideas and his cult cultural norms, he shouldn't have preached to the Gentiles. He was a Jew and they were not, but God led him to see them as equals and to declare Jesus Christ to them. So how did Peter find this group of Gentiles that God wanted him to speak to, right? You remember, we talked about it last week, God had Cornelius send for Peter, and again, without God, Cornelius would have probably never found Peter. I know I'm being repetitive, but I want you to see this. I want you to see how God's moving the pieces in the story. It's crazy, and it's awesome to think about. That's just our God. God moves to make Jesus known in the lives of those who do not know him, and he does so in a way only he could do. With God, things that we can't imagine are possible. And God's calling us to do those things with his help and his power. I want you to understand this, church. That if you have professed Jesus as your savior, God has called you and equipped you and he wants to send you. You have a purpose to fulfill and you cannot do it on your own. It has to be done within the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we have a vision here at New Heights Church to have one church with many different cultures. One church. And logically, it seems impossible. Now, when I pitched this vision, to fellow colleagues and said, I want to have an intercultural church. I want a church that has uh, representation from the entire world. Most people said, oh man, that's going to be a headache, Justin. 
that's going to be a big headache. Don't do that. You're, man, you are just going to hit your head against the wall so many times and get so frustrated. And, and honestly, it's really difficult to do that. I, I can understand why people would say it, but here's what I don't understand. If the Bible says that this is, this is what Jesus wants, this is why Jesus went to the cross, this is why Jesus died, and this is why he rose again, so that he can literally break down all the barriers and bring everyone together, then why isn't the church fighting for this? I mean, I am Pentecostal through and through, but you know what I learned from the, the book of Acts? The greatest sign of Pentecost, the greatest sign of a real move of the Holy Spirit, that people have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, is that they are able to come together with people from all kinds of different cultures and worship God. I mean, that's it, right? So why don't we fight for it more? Our vision here at New Heights Church, and I don't care how hard it is, I don't care if it's gonna be difficult to grow a church in the sense of numbers, I don't care. I don't care one bit. I'm not gonna shortcut the gospel in order to grow a big mega church. Don't wanna do it. Don't care to do it. I am going to make, we're gonna, not me. <laughs> Let me change. Let me change that, sorry, pain. <laughs> Let me change that. God is going to build a church with people from all over the world and it's gonna preach the power of the Holy Spirit to the community, I promise you. That's what God says he'll do and that's what we're gonna commit ourselves to doing. We're gonna ask God to be a part of it. If we do this, then the Holy Spirit's gonna lead us. We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to guide us because with God, things we can't imagine are possible. And what he's calling us to do can be accomplished with his help and his power. So Holy Spirit, we're gonna surrender ourselves to you. This church is yours. We want you to move in the lives and the hearts of everyone who calls New Heights Church their church. We wanna put away our personal preference. We wanna put away everything, anything that could distract us from your glory, your power, and your honor. Amen? Does that not get you excited? It gets me really excited. So, and just for your information, we, we, when I say we, I'm talking about the leadership of this church. We are very certain, absolutely 100% certain this is where the Spirit is leading us as a church. And we've used the Bible, we've used God's Word as a place to start, to see more clearly the will and the ways of God. And so today, uh, I think it's amazing that we find ourselves in Acts, and specifically Acts chapter 10, because we've talked about this a lot as a board lately talked a lot about what, how, can we, how can we build this church to be, to be a, a, a glimpse of what heaven is. It can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I love about this passage we find ourselves in today. So look with me at verse 34. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter had come to understand what Paul would later write in Romans chapter 3.29 when he says, is God to be the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Listen, no ethnic or racial group is superior to, to another. I'm gonna say that again. No ethnic or racial group is superior to another or gets preferential treatment from God. He accepts all who come to him on his terms. The Bible is clear about that. I am amazed at how much racism exists in churches today. Can I just, can I take a moment and just be honest with you? One of the hardest things that Liz and I discovered when we, 
when we went overseas is some of the horrible theology that I heard when it came to race. I could not believe it. The Bible is clear from Genesis to Revelation. We are all created in his image, and he died for all. <laughs> That's it. And by the way, this, this right here, this is a watershed moment in the New Testament because the Gentiles are, are being reached with the gospel and God's opening up Peter's eyes. His, his heart was opened up to the realization that Jesus just didn't die for the Jewish people. He died for the nations, for all people of the world. And, and that he's seeking worshipers for his glory from all the people of the earth. And this is, this is the key to our future here at New Heights Church. Because without prejudice being removed, our mission will absolutely never take off. And I mean it, it will be for nothing. I don't care how much money we give to missions, I don't care how big we grow this church, if we can't remove any kind of prejudice, then our mission will never be successful. This church will be a multicultural church reflecting the beauty of God's creation. That's what I love about America right now. Hasn't always been this way, but America, it used to be just New York's the melting pot, maybe Chicago, Los Angeles. Liz and I traveled uh, the, the whole United States when we were missionaries, going from church to church, state to state, and what we're seeing right now is God is just bringing the nations to America. What an opportunity for us as a church to preach a message to the world who can't figure this thing out. They can't. Why? Because they're lacking the power of the Holy Spirit, but not those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. The power of the Holy Spirit resides in us. We can do this as a church. We can accomplish this. One church with many different nations, with many different cultures, with many different languages. We can do this, amen? No partiality, he says. In Greek, it's literally without respect to face. So don't judge someone or show favoritism with respect to facial or external characteristics. It literally could be translated, God lifts up the face. That's the idea here. So now just imagine for a minute, have you ever interacted with someone who either they were deeply wounded emotionally or they were very embarrassed or they didn't feel like they fit in and they just kind of, they kept their face down all the time. They would never look you in the eye. Have you ever interacted with someone who, who uh, you begin to feel like, man, why, why are they hurting or what's going on? Because you can tell they're, they're just uncomfortable. And what Peter has come to learn in this context is through the gospel, God lifts the face, he lifts up the face where, he can see, where we can see each other eye to eye. There's no shame. We're all together, we're all on the same page. We all have mutual respect in seeing each other. And so that's kind of the idea here that he says, God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him does what is right and is acceptable to him. Now, don't misunderstand verse 35. He's not saying that wherever you go in the world that if people fear God and do good deeds, that God's gonna forgive them and accept them. It's not what verse 35 is saying. What he's trying to convey in verse 35 is actually that God shows no partiality, that is anyone who repents and turns to him and believes in him can be saved in spite of what nation or ethnic background they're from. That's what Peter's saying here. And hear me out, if you're taking notes, write it down. Our God is no respecter of persons when it comes to seeking the salvation of human beings who are all made in his likeness and image. Okay, listen to me. Here's what the gospel does. Racial barriers come crashing down. Ethnic barriers come crashing down. Cultural barriers come crashing down. Social, social barriers come crashing down. Economic barriers come crashing down. All barriers come crashing down. That's the point. That's what I need you to understand today. Salvation is available. 
I don't care who you are. I don't care what your strata. I don't care what your attitude at least is at this point. I don't, I don't care what your culture is. I don't care what your background is or what your race is. I don't really care about any of that. Salvation is available to you. That's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Man, that doesn't leave out anybody, does it? For everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Okay, that means God keeps his promises, as some men count slowness. People are slow. People don't keep their promises. God does. But is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, the argument of 2 Peter, why Peter even had to write this, is because people were kind of mocking and scoffing Christians who believed in the Lord's second coming. The Lord said he's going to come back. They thought it was funny. If, if he's going to come back, why hasn't he come back already? <laughs> the world's a mess. The world's jacked up, and, and you keep telling me your Savior's going to come. Well, he must be a phony. He must be a fake, and that's why he's not come. And Peter says, no, 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 no. He hasn't, he, he's not, not come because he's a phony. He hasn't come because he's merciful. And he's waiting to give men an opportunity to respond. It's mercy. It's not fakeness or phoniness because God wants men to come to salvation. And the term that Peter used here, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That means across the barriers, across the board, salvation is available. It's not for super religious people. It's not for strange kind of fanatics. Or it's for all men everywhere who respond. That's salvation. And so look with me here. We're going to look at verse 36, because Peter's about to preach. But what you need to understand is Peter's about to, he, he's a really good preacher. In fact, this is the example we got in our homiletics class when we were learning how to prepare sermons. Peter has a big idea he's presenting. He starts with that idea. Salvation is for everybody. Then he's gonna sandwich it, right? And he's gonna end with that same thought. The gospel's for everyone. So look with me. It says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Pause there for a minute. Like I said, Peter presents the gospel in three movements. Number one, the life and ministry of Jesus. We're looking at this in verse 37 through 39, or 36 through 39. Then his saving act of crucifixion and the resurrection. And then he ends again with the promise of salvation to everybody, to all. Anybody who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. Now, it's interesting that in the story, you've got the Spirit of God calling a man of God who preaches the Word of God so that people can come to believe in God. That's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> it's a powerful statement, though, because the method has not changed, right? You've got the Spirit of God calling a man of God who preaches the Word of God so that people can come to believe in God. The method has not changed. Same method today. That's why, that's why Paul can say in Romans, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him, in him of whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without somebody doing what? Preaching. 
So we're all called to preach the word. We're all called to preach the basic message of the gospel, which is what Peter's doing here. So what is the gospel, right? What are we, what are we called to preach? What's the gospel? I mean, gospel is a real Christian word. I call it Christianese, right? What, what in the world is the gospel? I am so thankful that I have kids because sometimes when I'm practicing my sermons, my kids will ask me questions. And so this one was Liam, my seven-year-old. I'm in there practicing my sermon, uh, and Liam goes, well, what is the gospel, Dad? Well, that's a really good question, Liam. What is the gospel? He says, what are we supposed to preach? Tell me what the gospel means. And so the best way to answer that question is to turn to the Bible, right? How many of you, how many of you knew that's what I was gonna say? In the Greek New Testament, the noun gospel appears just over 70 times, 70 times. Since, in one sense, the whole testament is about the gospel, we, 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 might, we might think, man, the word should have been used way more than that, but it's not. Another thing that's kind of shocking is that it used, it, its use varies a whole lot with different authors of the New Testament. So Paul uses the word more than three times as often as all the other authors combined. All right, most of, most of the other uses are found in Matthew, Mark, very few, if any, in Luke, John, Peter, and James. The word gospel simply means good news. That's what it means. The word's not unique either to, to the Christian message. It was, it was a word that was used in the pagan world. It, it meant a good announcement. But in the New Testament, make no mistake, it refers to the good news of Jesus, Jesus Christ as our Savior. And most of the time, it's used assuming that the reader knows what the word means. But really, if we want to understand what the gospel means, to answer Liam's question, Dad, what is the gospel? I can't think of a better verse than John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. There it is, right there. That's the gospel. And you look at what Peter preaches here in verses 36 through 39, he reminds his listeners of the work of Jesus Christ talking about Jesus Christ, his life and his ministry. Jesus' work in salvation, uh, and here's what you need to understand, and this is what we see in this verse. It's not, it's not just simply forgiving us of our sins. Jesus' prime objective was to reunite us with God. That was his prime objective. Have you guys ever seen that bumper sticker uh, that says Christians are not perfect, they're just forgiven? You guys know what I'm talking about? I hate that. Now, if you have that on your car, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, I just want you to understand theology here. Let me at least explain to you why I don't like that, because, because Christians, yeah, we're not perfect, that's true. Man, just attend church for a week and you'll discover that. None of us are perfect. Your pastor's far from being perfect. That's so true, but, but hear me out, hear me good. It's not that we're just forgiven. We've been restored to God. It's not that Christianity is just that we're forgiven. We have been restored to God. God has resumed again his rightful place as our master, our joy, and our security. All right, that's not just forgiven. That's a whole lot than just forgiven, right? Jesus came not just to free people from hell, but to bring people back to God. I'll say that one more time. Jesus came not just to free people from hell, but to bring people back to God. It's so important that we get that. It's so important. Because this is, the, this is one of the things that separates the message of Jesus from all the other religions. 
The gospel's prize isn't just eternal safety in paradise. It, it's God himself. God's the prize. I mean, that is so awesome about salvation. I have relationship with God, and that's something I treasure more than anything else in this world. I have relationship with God. And that's what Peter starts out with in verse 36, or 35 through 38, 39, really. <laughs> Sorry. He's talking about all that Jesus did. He, he mentions things Jesus did to restore broken relationships. How many of you know that's what Jesus does? He wants to restore a broken relationship with you. If you have not accepted Jesus as your savior, he wants to restore that relationship. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to know him intimately. He wants to restore what was broken. That's why Jesus came to this earth. Of course, we need forgiveness of sins, right? We want eternal security. We want all of that. And Jesus offers all of that. But don't, don't miss out. Don't just say salvation is just that because you're missing so much more. Salvation is so much more. And then Peter shifts. He begins to talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Look with me, the latter part of verse 39, we're gonna go through 41. It says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The resurrection proves Jesus was who he said he was and accomplished what he said he accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus is the central historical event in the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. That's why Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Because he's risen, Christ affects every part of our life, every part of our life, our past, our present, and our future. You know, our past, the Bible tells us that we're separated from God because he's holy and we're not. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. That's what Paul says in Romans. We cannot measure up to his standard and we cannot get to heaven in our own imperfection. I know some people think they can. They think they can work their way to heaven. You can't. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, it's not good enough. But thank God, he devised a plan, a plan of redemption. He would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to this world to live a perfect life, and he would ultimately go to the cross. Why? To pay the penalty of our sin, yours and mine. That's why Christ went to the cross. So what does this mean? Well, some wonder, how, how could one man do that? How could one man do that? No mere man could. But this man was the son of God. He was God in the flesh. And only through him can we, can we come to God fully justified. Jesus Christ himself said, and, and look with me, look what Jesus himself said. I am the way, I am the truth, and, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. Only, only by placing our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sin can we go to heaven. And because Jesus Christ came back from the grave demonstrating the reality of his words and, and the truthfulness of his statements, we know that, that his words are true and so our past is cared for. Not just our past though, it's our present too. You know, most people they're surprised that the resurrection has anything to do with our present. At least this is what I get a lot. But the Bible tells us that because Jesus Christ died on the cross and because he rose from the grave, 
he now gives us that same power that was used to bring him back from the dead so that we can live our lives every day in resurrection power. And this is, this is the part of the resurrection that so many Christians forget sometimes. Right? We don't understand how much it affects our life right now. Over and over again, we read that Jesus Christ has given us the power to live a special life. One of the, the really encouraging passages is Paul in Ephesians chapter one. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he who worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That work is inside of us right now, in the present. What does that mean? Well, it means we have the same power available to us to live the Christian life that God used to bring Jesus Christ out of the grave. We struggle when we try to live the Christian life on our own power. How many of you can say amen to that? in our own strength, but if we depend on the power of God for help, he's gonna give us the strength and he's gonna give us the power. You and I, <laughs> you and I, well, listen, we, we're sinful, but he saves us. He changes us from being cruel, mean-spirited, hateful people, and we discover a desire to be kind and loving and gracious. We're lustful, we're immoral, and he takes those emotions and those desires and he changes them by the power of God in us and we become different people. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. This is salvation. Christ died on the cross gave us that same power, that same power is within you, the power of the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is in you so that you can live the Christian life. That's it. I hate, I'm a man so I can say this, and long before I ever was a pastor I always heard this, well men will be men. That's baloney. Men, men will be men. It, well, men will be men. Let me, let me at least reference what I'm talking. Let me, why do I always get myself in trouble? <laughs> men are men, make no mistake, okay? But, but that's often said, men will be men in an excuse for men sinning. For maybe a, a guy watching something he shouldn't have or looking at something he shouldn't have. Well, men will be men. Baloney. Jesus died on the cross so that you could overcome that temptation. The power, that, the same power that that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Are, are you. are you living a life according to that? Are you, I mean, what do you mean men will be men? No, men who have been redeemed will live redeemed. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they'll, they'll overcome temptation. I'm not saying we, we'll live it and we'll be perfect. I'm not saying when you make a mistake, you gotta fear for your salvation. I'm, I'm just saying that somebody who has been redeemed and has the power of, uh, the same power that raised up Jesus from the dead living inside of them is gonna absolutely hate sin. The statement, men will be men, doesn't exist anymore if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, right? Come on. How does it happen? It happens because the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and fill us with the power of the resurrection. So it affects our, our past, it affects our present, also affects our future, right? Not only does the resurrection affect past, present, but it's the guarantee for our future. Because Jesus rose from the grave, he became, for believers, the guarantee that one day when we die, 
we too are gonna come back from the grave. The Bible says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In 1 Thessalonians chapter four, this is what Paul says. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's pretty powerful. It's the guarantee that we have as believers. We can take it to the bank. And it's all hinged on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not come out of the grave, we would have no hope whatsoever. We would die in hopelessness. And many people do die in hopelessness today because they refuse the truth of the risen Jesus. But when we place our trust in Jesus and we ask him to forgive us our sins, to save us, come and live within our lives, we receive the gift of eternal life and the guarantee of heaven. That's the gospel message. And this is pretty stinking awesome. It is. We don't have to fear death because we have an incredible hope, the hope that one day we will be with God forever and it's not a, a hope so kind of hope, it's a no so kind of hope. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I know I'm jumping all over and that's not usually like me, but, oops. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is not just something we celebrate once a year at Easter with our families. The resurrection is the most important doctrine of the Bible because if Jesus didn't do what he said he would do, which was to come back from the grave after three days, we can't believe anything that he said. But Jesus did do what he promised he would do. And we have this amazing Savior, awesome in the fact that he came from God in his origin, unique in the fact that he was born of a virgin, unique because he lived a life without sin, and unique because he came out of the grave victorious over death. That's the Jesus that I serve. And that same uniqueness that is in Jesus Christ is available to all of us to help us live a life that honors him. It's amazing. But the Holy Spirit in our heart, through Jesus Christ, we have victory over our past in the here and now and for eternity, all right? That's amazing. Now look with me. He moves. He transitions. Like I said, he's going to sandwich his sermon. He started out with the Gospels for everyone. He goes to the life and ministry of Jesus. He talks about the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Now he's going to come back to his first point. He says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him... All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here we have this, this uh, missionary plea, pretty much. A gospel mandate right here. It's affirmed in what Peter says. I love the quote from Carl F.H. Henry. He says, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The command to witness is given to all followers of Jesus Christ, everyone. So please hear me out today. The command to witness is given to all followers of Jesus Christ. If you have given your life to Jesus, if you have placed your trust and your faith in Jesus, you are called to go be a witness, all right? 
And, and you know, it's, like I said, it's all throughout the book of Acts. It's all throughout the Bible. Acts 1-8 starts with, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a command from Jesus Christ after his resurrection and it's to all of his followers. It's like John Stott says, we, we can no more restrict the command to witness than we can restrict the promise of the Spirit. All right? If you've put your faith in Jesus, this is your purpose, to go proclaim the risen Christ. It's your purpose. And say that your purpose is now to become a pastor or a preacher, but this is your purpose. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you are to proclaim the gospel. In writing to the Corinthian believers, Paul over and over taught, and I'll, actually I'll just, I'll read it. Listen to what he says. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's not only the apostles that have the ministry of reconciliation and the role of Christ's ambassadors. All believers do. You get this? Charles Spurgeon said, said this. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. <laughs> I like it. It's convicting, but I like it. Let that sink in for a minute. It's a very bold statement. I get it. I told you, I, I talk about Charles Spurgeon a lot in my sermons. He's one of my favorite characters of history, Christian history. He pastored one of the, the first large churches of the modern era. It was the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It, thousands of people came to faith under his ministry, and it's it said that he preached to upwards of 10 million people over the course of his, his life. And so why would Charles Spurgeon say every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter? Because it seems odd to me. Is he saying that every true follower of Jesus Christ should pack up their bags, move to India, and become a missionary? I mean, that's what a missionary is, right? Someone who leaves this country goes to another country, or at least that's what we've been taught a missionary is. Now, I grew up in the Assemblies of God, and the Assemblies of God loves world missions. It's pretty cool. Maybe I'm the only one excited about that. <laughs> I grew up in the AG. The AG loves world missions, right? And I come from a long line of missionaries myself. In fact, I have so many relatives living overseas that I think I've got more cousins overseas than I do who live in the United States of America. My, my great, great grandfather was the first Assemblies of God missionary to the country of China. I have got so, so much uh, in my own family uh, so much of my heritage is tied and tethered to the Assemblies of God and, and their love and their passion for world missions. And as a child, I remember missionaries coming before my dad went to the mission field. He was a pastor. And I remember missionaries coming to the Sunday night service. How many of you remember Sunday nights? Man, those were good, huh? Lord, bring them back. They'd, they'd have their slideshow. Sunday night for us growing up usually was a guest speaker. We'd have missionaries come. And I, I remember when the missionaries would come, they usually would have their slideshow. You know, and I would, I would get a kick out of seeing, seeing all the different pictures of these exotic places that these missionaries lived 
and then in the lobby, they would set up their display table, and they'd have the, the cardboard box with the pictures pasted to it, and they would usually have a bowl of candy from their country. It was my favorite thing. Loved it. And uh, Europe, European missionaries, they had the best candy. The chocolate was amazing, right? I knew God was calling me to be a missionary to, to Europe so I can have that amazing chocolate. But I remember this, and they, they always had these little knickknacks on their table, and it was just fascinating, you know? And we were always told growing up, I think this was a slogan at one point, that here in the Assemblies of God, there's three things you could do to fulfill the Great Commission. And maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. And I'm, I'm not going to criticize the statement because I understand the purpose and the reason behind it, but I want to talk about some of the effects that it had. Uh, we were told we could do three things to fulfill the Great Commission, pray, give, or go. Pray, give, or go. That's what your part is in the Great Commission. You can do one of those things. Well, I mean, I couldn't go as a 12-year-old, so I guess that left me to praying and giving. I didn't have much to give either. I had no way of making money at 12. Until I was 13, I got a paper out. So I could pray. I felt basically that those who worked normal jobs in the United States were kind of the junior varsity team. I'm going to be real transparent with you. All of you who love missions, don't hate me. Just hear me out. Listen to the end. <laughs> And the junior varsity squad, they made themselves feel better by giving money or by praying. Nothing wrong with those two. But the truth is we don't have the option to pick one. We're given the command to do all three. We abuse that text sometimes when we use it as just a missionary text. And keep listening to me. We are given the command to do all three. The Great Commission, if you, if you really want a good translation in the original Greek, it's as you are going. As you are going, make disciples. The only imperative command in that passage is actually make disciples. Which is funny because we as the church sometimes we forget that part. We love the go, we love to preach the gospel, and we don't do a very good job of making disciples because making disciples is the hard work. But that's the only imperative command in the Great Commission. Make disciples. Go is better translated, as you are going. And that leaves nobody out. As you are going, as you are living your life, as you do what you do, make disciples. As you go drink coffee, or you go to Skyline, or you go to Burger King, now you guys know my schedule. Make disciples. Make disciples. As you go to, to your law office, make disciples. As you go to the, uh, the doctor's office, make disciples. Whatever you do, make disciples. That's what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission. That leaves nobody out. Fortunately, this kind of thinking concerning missionaries is, is sometimes the only thing that comes to mind when we talk about missionaries. And I was really, I, I thought, man, should I, should I even bring up the word missionary? Or is this going to be too controversial? Because I don't want you to think I don't believe in missions. I'm going to get to that in a little minute, too. But in Spurgeon's mind, the essence of what it means to be a Christian is that you live your life as a missionary regardless of where you live, stateside or overseas. In fact, if we take a look at the life of Jesus, he was a missionary. At least 39 times. Did you hear that? 39 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as sent on a mission. He left his home in heaven, left his family, left his culture to come to the earth as a missionary to reach a people who had never otherwise been restored to the Father. But you know what else? Jesus not only refers to himself as sent, 
He refers to every single Christian as sent. We are all sent as missionaries here and now to the culture where we live. In fact, look at the words of Jesus. Don't look at the words of Jesus. Hear the words of Jesus. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Listen to that. As you sent me into the world. God, as you sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus is going to send us into the world. This is why the early church made disciples at lightning speed. It wasn't because they had fancy programs, great productions. It was because they, every single believer operated as a missionary. Every single one. There was no such thing as a foreign missionary in the early church. They did not understand that term. I love what Michael Green says in evangelism in the early church. He says that early Christianity's explosive growth was in reality accomplished by the means of informal missionaries. Let me tell you what, the greatest ministry does not take place in this sanctuary on Sunday. It takes place Monday through Friday outside those doors in your life. That's how the, that's how the church grows. That's how I want it to grow. Why? Because it's the example we're given. I understand that we could do a whole lot to bring in crowds. We can bring in a crowd if we really wanted to. Look around and see all of the room. I know some of you are saying, but Pastor Justin, you keep taking seats out. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But look up here, because none of these seats have been taken. If we want to bring a crowd in, there's all kinds of things we can do. I could go get some superstar Christian preacher and bring him in, and we can fill this place up. We can start doing all kinds of things to bring people in. We can, right? But here's the truth. This is what I want, because this is, this is the blueprint for the church. The church is going to be built through the individuals who call on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's how the church is built. That's healthy growth. It's got to be through you. You come on Sunday, I gotta equip you, I gotta give you the resources, but you gotta go out and make disciples. I'm gonna have great programs, I promise. We are gonna, we are gonna have strong programs when it comes to the Bible. That's why we do JBQ, that's why we've got the in-depth Bible study for the kids that Mary leads. I'm all excited about that. But I wanna see kids, including my own, I wanna see Liam get active in the Great Commission. I wanna see Liam go to a school and invite friends to church. I wanna see Liam share Jesus Christ at his lunch table at school. That's what I wanna see. I wanna see you guys going out and making disciples. Because the command was not just given to, to the church as an institution or an organization. It was given to the church as a movement, a movement of people who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's you and that's me. Come on. That's how I'm going to build this church. God's going to build his church. Man, I keep saying that. If it's up to me, nothing will happen, but thank God for his power. That's how God's going to build this church. That's the process we're going to submit to. It's got to be through you. Tim Keller, he, he kind of uh, communicates a similar concept. He says, not only the apostles, but every Christian did evangelism. And they did so endlessly. Numerous passages indicate that every Christian was expected to evangelize, follow up, nurture, and teach people the word. This happened relationally. One person bringing the gospel to another within the context of a relationship. This is how New Heights Church is going to grow, through you guys. This is it. Do you know, interestingly, the word missionary never occurs in the Bible. It's a noun that we've created as a way of describing someone sent on a mission. Yet, really, if I were to say, well, you know, Liam has asked me this before. Again, I love kids for their good questions. I've never read missionary in the Bible, Dad. So why do we use the word missionary? Well, the answer is not totally clear and, and easy because even the term mission is, is rare in the New Testament. Luke did not use a Greek word for mission. 
when he described the call that the Holy Spirit placed on Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. The call, and, and a massive movement, no doubt, but it was stated like this, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's it, nothing more. Maybe some of you feel I'm not being fair to those who are sent to a specific country for a specific task. So here's what I wanna do. I know this is really teachy, but I propose the following definition of a missionary, because you have to remember, Liz and I served for 10 years as missionaries. We absolutely believe it. We support missions. We wanna support as many missionaries as we can who feel the call of God on their life to go bring the gospel somewhere. That's the history of this church. That's the DNA of this church. That's a vision that's bigger than us, right? We're gonna continue to do that because that's all throughout the gospel. But I wanna propose the following definition of a missionary. A missionary is a qualified Christian sent out under the authority of a local church to an area of recognized need in order to pursue the work of the Great Commission. Missionary isn't one simply by virtue of what he or she does or where he or she goes, but because of how and whom they are sent. That's how the, the Bible describes a missionary, or describes one who's sent. So in that sense, the typical believer, yeah, it, we're not missionaries in that sense, but, but what Spurgeon was saying, and what I'm reiterating, is that you either try to spread the gospel message, or else you don't really love Jesus. I know that's harsh. I know that probably upsets some of you. But that's what, God, that's what Charles Spurgeon was saying here, and that's what I'm reiterating. Because it cannot be that there's a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Let me read this. This is from a sermon in 1873 from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what he says. He says, once more, he who really has the high estimate of Jesus will think much of him and as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk much of him. Do we do so? If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. He goes on to say, of course, I do not mean by that that those who use the pen are silent. They are not, and those who help others to use the tongue or spread that which others have written or doing their part well, but that man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. You are either doing good or you are not good yourself. If thou knowest Christ, Thou art as one that has found honey. Thou wilt call others to taste of it. Thou, thou art like the leper who have found food which the Syrians had cast away. Thou wilt go to Samaria and tell the hungry crowd that thou hast found Jesus and, and art anxious that they should find him too. He closes with this. Be wise in your generation. Speak of him in fitting ways and in fitting times. And in so every place proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. Man, that'll preach today. Every single person in this auditorium who has placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior absolutely needs to see themselves as missionaries sent by Jesus Christ in that sense. We are sent into the world. We are sent on a mission. The worship team can come up, by the way, wherever you guys are as we close this out. The gospel needs to be preached. The gospel has to be preached. It's, it, it is a time-tested message that never changes. 
And I understand uh, sometimes the, the method will change, but not the message. The message is the same. Time-tested message. It's the same message. We are sinners, and we need Jesus Christ. Only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. That won't ever change. Never. Won't ever change. And I don't care if, it's a, if we proclaim it through puppets. I don't care if we proclaim it through uh, uh, production on the street. I don't, I don't care how it's proclaimed, but we've got to preach the gospel. The message can't change. That's the beauty of this simple message that needs to re- be repeated over and over again. And it's our responsibility to bear that message, yours and mine. But it's not just a simple message. Like I said, it's a timeless message. It's time-tested, never changes. In fact, here at the end of verse 43, Peter says, hey, you know what? <laughs> Even all the prophets, all the prophets who wrote those books that we now hold together in, the, in our Old Testament, they believed in this too. It's a timeless message. It's a simple message. And today, as we have read and we've unpacked this text, we're forced to come to this reality. So many times in our life, we don't actually proclaim the message because we've put our faith in things that we possess. I don't know, maybe it's our fame, our reputation, our position, our title. Maybe it's even our nationality. And can I just say this? I, I am proud to be an American. I mean it, I am. Every, yeah, you can clap for America. I love America. Every 4th of July, I'm the guy driving around my car blasting the Lee Greenwood song, and I'm proud to be an American. Where at least I know I'm free. Come on, who knows it? (laughs) And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. I'm a proud American. I am. I love America. I love the fact that I'm here today preaching the gospel and I have the right to do it. I'm thankful for our country, but I also can't put my trust in the fact that I'm an American. Even my nationality does not earn me anything. The country I belong to does not gain favor with God. The amount of money in my 401k does not gain me favor with God. The amount of time that I serve and love and, and even give in humanitarian efforts does not earn me favor with God. In fact, and hear me out, hear me good, it's not what we possess that gives us favor with God. It's what we surrender. It's not what we possess that gives us favor with God. It's what we surrender. Not our fame, not our creed, not our wealth, not my nationality. It's what I surrender. So my question to you today as we end is, is what or who do you place your confidence in? Where is it that you place your hope in? Because I'm reminded of the powerful words in Joshua 24 that we, we have to choose today to serve God. It's for me and my household, we will serve God. He alone is worthy of our sacrifice. He alone is worthy of our surrender. And when we can reach that place in our hearts, when we understand the clarity of the gospel and we surrender to that, it's then and only then that we experience the ultimate peace. And when we surrender to that, it becomes easy to share this good news. You guys have heard the story over and over. Preachers have been using this as an example, I mean, my whole life, and I've read it in books. But it's like somebody discovering the cure for a disease being plagued by this disease and somebody discovers it and that person doesn't share it. We have the answer. We 
you've experienced grace and mercy. And my prayer for this church, and I won't, I won't stop, I won't do what's easy, I'll choose the hard right over the easy wrong every single time because I want it God's way, not my way, not your way, I want it God's way. And I want this church to grow, I do. I wanna see all of these seats filled. I've come into this auditorium so many times throughout the week and I have prayed, God, please, please bring people who need to hear about your grace and your mercy, bring them to this place. But I'm not gonna try some gimmick to get people here. We are gonna operate the way that God tells us to operate. The church is a movement, not an organization. You guys, you, you're gonna go out and reach your neighbor. You're gonna go out and reach your colleagues. That's how this church is gonna grow. So that's how I wanna close today. When I'm done praying, you are officially dismissed. You, you don't have to stay. Uh, as soon as I say amen, you're officially dismissed. Our worship team is gonna stay up here and they're gonna continue to play. Our altars are open. We wanna give you an opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And so we, we're gonna give you that opportunity. But if you need to go, that's okay. You can go too. But I'm gonna pray a prayer over this church. I'm gonna pray a prayer over your life. Will you join me? Father, we love you so much. We are so thankful and grateful that we have experienced your mercy and your grace. That's what it is. None of us can do anything to earn our salvation. <laughs> That's why you had to send your son. I pray, I pray that everybody would understand that, would grasp that, how much grace and how much mercy you have in going to the cross and dying in place of our sin. But God, that that truth would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would change us and transform us. God, that our purpose in life would be to bring as many people to heaven as possible. God, you have placed lost people in our life for a reason. You are directing our steps. You're like a master at a chessboard. You are, you are orchestrating everything. God, that we would just be faithful and obedient to say yes to you and have the boldness to proclaim the gospel message. I pray that over every single person here in this auditorium today who have placed their faith in you. Would you do that? We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody says.